Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line, our third dividing line for the week. Um, but it's 2020, it's two days after the election, and why not? <laughs> They're selling. I, I just I want to thank whoever it was on Twitter that has uh, informed me that the special only once a year white fudge covered Oreos uh, are now available at Walmart. Um, so, uh, what? Of course, that, 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 they've been around for years, but only around Christmas time. They're, they're Oreo cookies with, uh, with white fudge covering. And, um, they, they were, they were a favorite in our house. And so I know Summer really, really likes them. They're small little packages and they're, they're not cheap. Um, but they're about 450 calories per cookie too. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine if they did one of those Max, what do they call them, Max, the Max stuffed Oreos? Uh, with that, that, that would be like about 750 calories per cookie. And they'd have to include a syringe of insulin uh, in each, in each <laughs> bag. Because <laughs> it just, I can't imagine the sugar rush that would come from that. We're all addicted to sugar. I, I just hope you understand that. Anyway. But I am excited about that. Uh, it's 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 a great thing. Uh, I've got to come up with something to to be thinking. Actually, by this weekend, it's going to feel winterish again uh, here in Phoenix. I hope it stays that way um, because it is early November, and we just blew through our heat record for the day. Uh, it's it's what what's the what's the date today? Uh, November fifth. Yeah, November fifth. And we just set the all-time record high uh, temperature for any day in November in, uh, in recorded history. And certainly, we, we blew through by 5 degrees the record high for this day. The record for this day was 93. Uh, we just hit 98 degrees Fahrenheit here in Phoenix. And I, I, haven't, I haven't looked to see if anything has changed, uh, to see if we've, if we've uh, you know, managed to... Because now they're now they're saying high ninety nine. I figure let's just go for it. Let let's 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 just let's have our first one hundred degree November day. Why not? It's twenty twenty. It's just you know that would fit really well. But it's uh, currently it's ninety eight degrees in uh, in Phoenix, and um, so I've got to come up with something to try to feel like you know we're only a matter of weeks from Thanksgiving. Um, those of us who get to celebrate it. Um, hey, enjoy your Thanksgiving and Christmas this year uh, because who knows how long the European-style lockdowns are going to be uh, if, um, if Kamala Harris is, is president uh, come uh, January 21st or 22nd, whenever that is. Um, <clears throat> I'll bet you the, the, whoever, uh, I'll bet you if, if, if they're elected, they won't, will not attend the pro-life march in Washington like, uh, like Trump did. You think? Yeah. In fact, they'll probably try to shut it down. Uh, oh, oh, they'll, they'll, they'll come, but, but see, I could see, I could see them doing everything in their power to shut that down because, uh, COVID, of course, uh, unless it was a black lives matter thing and then, yeah, it's fine. But anyway. Yeah, so here we are. Um, I want to. Uh, someone, uh, I think it was uh, Brian uh, on um, Twitter earlier today, um, 
said something like, let's see, tweets and replies. Did you know I tried to scroll back in my tweets and it stopped at June June 1st. I couldn't get any farther back than that. I didn't know that. Um, so there you go. Um, I was trying to find something that I had said and I could not could not find it. I did just... If you want to watch a funny video, uh, someone brilliantly uh, edited the Paula White video. If you haven't seen the Paula White video of of her standing up there, there's a small number of people in this large room just sort of wandering around doing strange things. And she's standing up front, and she's in a rhythmic way going back and forth between allegedly speaking in tongues and talking about victory and latter rain, and it's all about how Trump's going to win, and she's, you know... Well, someone, recognizing that she was doing this to a beat, found a, a song that went to that beat, and they found this cat. <laughs> they added the cat in, who's going to the beat, <laughs> along with her. And it's like two minutes long, and there's this guy, Fred Butler and I both noticed, there's this guy just wandering back and forth across the stage. And it looks like he's reading a book or something. I, I, we couldn't figure him out. Uh, he does have his hand up once, so it must be... It is just... I retweeted it if you want to watch it yourself. It's... Uh, what are you doing? How'd you do that? Oh, you brought it up yourself. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's the um, that's the video. Okay. Yeah. All right. There's a there's a black lady down front. Looks like she's shooing um, mosquitoes away. And then yeah, there you go. It's it's pretty amazing stuff. You you check that. Anyhow. <laughs> no, no, no. We really we don't need to go there. It it's it no. It's okay. It's all right. Uh but what I was looking for and got distracted by that, that, that was what, <laughs> that's what the problem was. Um, someone had said, and that's what I wanted to, wanted to find. Um, there we go. Uh, Brian Herbala had said, Christmas isn't going to be the same this year. Uh, to which I responded, I'm praying it will be the best ever. Focus on the incarnation. Focus on meaningful family traditions. A true act of revolution. We will not bow the knee to Caesar. The Lord has come. And I really meant that. And so I thought I would uh, start off today with a Christmas story. Yes, I'm going to start off with a Christmas story. It's 98 degrees outside. And it's November 5th. And um, some of you... Some of you... You know, I, I cannot imagine there are going to be too many people that are going to obey the California um, lockdown rules and stuff like that. And I'd like to think there wouldn't be too many cops in California that would enforce it anyways. But you get into Australia, you get into the U.K., Germany. It's going to be a lot of people that are going to be separated from family and friends because of this stuff. There's a, uh, there are churches that, well, you know, some of those churches, if they, if they do what they can do, which would be 
sort of secret, in-house, few people quietly singing together meetings, you can still do it. And I'll be honest with you, it'll probably be some of the most special stuff you could ever do. I'd encourage you to do it. I really would. Um, Break the elders up. Break the congregation up. Make sure not to meet at the same time. Make sure to arrive in in staggered numbers from different directions. Uh, Learn from the church that survived under the USSR and how not to attract attention to yourselves. You know, don't go walking down the street with, you know, a bunch of stuff and bags that obviously, you know, you got to, you can go all the way back to the, uh, the hiding place and uh, Corey Ten Boom and how they traveled around and made it look like they were doing normal stuff and do your thing. Um, But get together, meet, worship, pray. uh, And I, I think, I think Silent Night, Stille Nacht, for those of you in, uh, in Germany, um, sung quietly together can be beautiful with maybe a single candle going or something. You know, I, I don't know. I'm just uh, shooting the breeze here, thinking about some of the ways you could do things. But uh, I really do think that uh, it could be a special time if we spend some time preparing for it. And so... I am thinking back. I've been thinking back a lot on my um, younger years, thinking a lot about how blessed we have been in our country. You know, you you think about what's going on right now, and in many countries in the world, what is so unsettling for us, that is uncertainty about elections, whether votes are being manufactured out of thin air, um, that kind of thing. That's normal. That there are there are there are entire groups of Christians in this world that have grown up with that as the, their every every year normal. We're all upset because we've grown up with the exact opposite of that. All that means is we've been really blessed, and once we lose that blessing, does that mean we're we're not blessed any longer at all? No. We just need to be thankful for how long we had such a system and. Um, recognize there are Christians who have lived under corrupted systems for a long, long time, and and we will too. Um, But uh, anyway, I remember very, very clearly a uh, Christmas. We, um, in my family, uh, when I grew up, we had, from my earliest days, from my earliest memories, from three years old on up, uh, we had one Christmas tree. You saw that Christmas tree. Um, just a one Christmas tree, which obviously means it was an artificial Christmas tree. And it was only like five feet tall, maybe. If it was that, man, I now I think about it, it may not even been five feet tall. It might have been four or something. And it, it was two wooden sections that you'd screw together. And then these wire brush branches. And eventually we had to stick toothpicks down into the holes because the holes got bigger and bigger over the years from putting the thing in and out. And they started <laughs> so you had to stick toothpicks down there to keep the branches from falling over. 
And of course, the the wire brush stuff. You know, you, you, some of it starts falling out. It starts getting all flattened. You have to try to every year. You have to try to put the worst branches at the back and you know try to fluff it up a little bit or something. Pretty much the same star at the top too. Um, initially, it was not uh, when we moved to Arizona. I think is when we got the one that had lights in it. And these are the min- we we had this was mini lights primarily. And then the tinsel, remember? Uh, in fact, the the original tinsel we had not wasn't just like the garland type thing. The original tinsel we had would be this stuff that would come in a package and you would pick it up in the middle and you'd hang it over branches and it would hang down. And the reason that the original stuff that we had hung down was because it had lead in it. <laughs> okay? This is, this is the 1960s, all right? Uh, early 1960s. So that was our orig- original tinsel. It was heavy because it had lead in it. And that's, that's what made it. And once they got rid of that, then it wouldn't ever really hang nice. It would sort of you know, get all wrinkly and stuff because it wasn't heavy anymore. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, so I, I remember this, uh, this one Christmas, uh, here in Arizona, um, it, it, I, I was probably, well, I, I think I'd already started taking, um, uh, I think I, I think I was married actually. Now I think about it. I, I think Kelly was there. Um, well, maybe not. I'm not sure. I, I remember, I remember there was one year. That um, when I really started studying Mormonism, and hence really started studying my own faith, um, I mentioned to my dad that I really wanted to have some resources that dug into the original languages. And I remember he took me down to a Berean Christian bookstore. Remember Berean? Hmm. Remember when there were a bunch of Christian bookstores around here? Yeah, Jesus Chapel. And you had Central Christian Supply. Uh, then we had Berean at 35th and Camelback. C- Central Christian Supply. That was Central Christian Supply, yeah. That was, that was the store where I went and picked up the book, um, Handbook of Christian Dominations, to find out what a Reformed Baptist was. Oh, I didn't own it, but I went to Central Christian Supply because I knew they had a copy of it. And that's why I found out what a Reformed Baptist was. Uh, after I picked up a cassette tape, from Don Fry at Phoenix Foreign Baptist Church at Berean, because they had a little display at the Bible counter at Berean. And that was a long time ago. Uh, so we went down to uh, Berean Christian Bookstore, and uh, those were the days when that was, if you wanted to get into like a, a Bible debate, since there wasn't any internet, <laughs> that's right. You went to Christian bookstores, because, uh, you know, yeah, you didn't go into the trinket section. The people in the trinket section weren't going to debate with you, but the people in the theology section or the Bible section, uh, you might be able to get into a, an eternal security debate or tongues debate. Or we, we, we hung out in the charismatic section. You you hung out in the charismatic section. Yeah, are you? <laughs> so I got that that Paula White thing got got rich. That's why he wanted to play it. He 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 he's all. His uh, former charismatic years are are coming back to him in, in a rush, and he's like, ah, ah, stop that. Uh, that cat had more sense than anybody else in that video. So, uh, anyway, so 
We went down to Green Christian Bookstore, and, and he bought me, I, I remember, uh, he bought me um, Kenneth Wiest's set and A.T. Robertson's set, which are still in my library to this day. And, of course, they're in, now I have them electronically as well. But uh, those are the first two uh, sets of original language-based commentaries uh, that, not commentaries, but a set of books that I, that I got. And I don't remember exactly how long ago, how long after that that was. Because I'm pretty certain that when we had this conversation, I, I, I think I was in my first year of Greeks. So that would be second or third year of college. And so one Christmas night, now we were at my parents' house. So if I was married, then we had, had gone up there, you know, and, you know, the standard Christmas was... Uh, get up there, uh, you'd normally have uh, the Cowboys playing, or was that just Thanksgiving? There'd be some, there'd be some football going on, and, um, you know, the smell of turkey, oh, uh, just, uh, just that turkey and dressing is still, still the best in the world. But then sometimes we would, uh, for example, I, I still have, I found it on iTunes, uh, sometimes we'd listen to a Christmas carol that had been recorded back in the 50s. Uh, well, my, my parents had uh, an LP record of the Christmas carol. So the original recording I had had all the pops and hisses and cracks and stuff like that. Then I found it digitally, which doesn't have any pops and hisses, and obviously the quality's better, but it's sort of lacking something without the pops and hisses. And since it was an LP, you had to turn it over halfway through. So you always got a little break, you know, halfway through, which you don't get with the digital one. Anyway, so sometimes we listen to, um, oh, what was that guy's name? Chevalier? That no, wasn't Chevalier. Anyways, famous narrator of uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol. It was really well done. But it was only half an hour, so it was really quick. Well, actually, it was less than half an hour. It was like 20 minutes, something. It wasn't very long. But we'd listen to that. We'd just have the Christmas tree lights on, and we'd listen to a Christmas carol or something along those lines. Well, this one Christmas, I will get to it eventually, sorry. This one Christmas, uh, my, uh, and I'm pretty certain I I had some Greek under my belt at this point in time. My dad started telling me this, uh, and I think he said that he remembered this from Skipper Weist, Kenneth Weist, professor at Moody Bible Institute. I know I've told this story before, but we have a lot of new listeners and who are all tuned out by now. Anyways, um, and uh, uh, Kenneth Weist uh, taught uh, Greek there at Moody Bible Institute, and um, you had to take Greek if you. There were two tracks that you that you had that were offered back then: uh, the missionary track and the pastoral track. And you had to take Greek if you're in the pastoral track, but you didn't if you were in the missionary track. And so the saying at Moody Bible Institute was that Kenneth Weist sent more men to the mission field than, than anyone else ever had, and uh, which meant he ran a tight ship, the good ship Greek, and uh, you had to know what you were doing. And, uh, and the interesting thing was they used the exact same Greek grammar in the 1950s that I was using when I learned Greek. William Hersey Davis uh, was the author of that one. And, and my dad's Greek, Greek grammar that he used, that he learned it from, was the same one that I learned it from 
many, many, many moons later. And that's not the one I would recommend today, to be honest with you. Mounts is a lot friendlier, but anyway. So, according to my dad, uh, this, he had gotten this from Kenneth Wiest, who I'm sure got from somebody else, for that matter. And uh, we got our Greek New Testaments out, and uh, we had this long table um, that I think, I think uh, he still has that you could pull out. And uh, we sat at this uh, long table, and we looked at the prologue of John and went through the purposeful utilization of Greek verbal forms in the prologue of John to communicate a divine truth. And, of course, I've used that information. It's found in uh, Forgotten Trinity now. If you're interested in taking a look at it, but um, uh, it's just a remembrance, part of it being that Christmas tree lights do not produce a whole lot of light, and therefore reading your Greek New Testament by Christmas tree lights is probably why I can't see anything anymore. Uh, So strain your eyes to be able to to see that font, but... uh, just an incredible memory of of that evening, and uh, you know that's sort of passing stuff on from generation to generation, and and um, uh, things like that. Uh, I'm sure it was a number of years later that uh, my dad and I got to go to Moody together. Uh, I was invited to speak, uh, do some lecturing up there, and speak in chapel for a couple of sessions, and so we got to go up there. I think it was in 1995, if I recall correctly. Um, or was it 2005? 2005, not 1995. 2005, yeah, uh, that's what it was. Anyhow, I would uh, like to share with you uh, what we were talking about on that uh, Christmas night, or it might have even been Christmas Eve, now that I think about it. I don't know. There were a number of years um, where we would have a lot of places we'd have to go on Christmas uh, with, fam- with family on both sides in the valley, and so maybe it was a Christmas Eve, I don't remember. But uh, it is, a, I think, a beautiful thing to note, and that is if you look at uh, what we call the prologue of John, there are certain scholars today who are um, basically arguing, yes, theology matters, there we go, uh, T-shirt, those aren't up yet, are they? But soon. We'll let you know when they're when they're there. Um, but um, if you look at there are some scholars that are disputing the identification of the first eighteen verses as, as a prologue. They would say, "Well, the early church didn't see it that way." Well, okay. But on a conceptual and logical level, on a textual level, it it forms a um, a single unit. And verse 18 functions as a bookend to, to, to verses 1 and 2. So I, I do see it as a, not self-contained, it's not meant to be taken separately from, but it is very clearly meant to be taken as the interpretive grid through which the rest of the book is to be understood. And most of the, um, well, all, obviously, of the Unitarian interpretation of John just misses, not misses, but rejects the interpretive priority of this text. Yet John is plainly attempting to 
craft something. There is a, there is a flow to his thought. We, we have this idea that Gospels are, are the same thing that you would get if someone had followed Jesus around with a, with a video camera, with an iPhone, and just recorded every day and stuff like, no, that's, that's obviously not what their intention was at all. And there is uh, crafting of not only what stories are told, but the order in which they're told and the reason with, where they're placed where they are. And, and John's communicating a particular message. A, he wants to communicate something. And those first 18 verses provide a lens through which you are to read the rest of his gospel. And missing the content of that is what leads to so many of the errors of the reading of uh, the Gospel of John, including the errors of oneness Pentecostalism, Unitarianism, um, all those types of things, uh, miss the importance of that, those first 18 verses. But what is interesting is, in those, in the first 14 verses, first, first, let's, let's talk about the first 13 verses, we'll get to verse 14 in a second, you have basically um, two primary verbs that are found in the first 13 verses. Verbs that refer to being. So, is, was, am, are our being verbs in English? And so you have imi in Greek, and its various forms, and then in the aorist you have a genita, genemi. And when you have, for example, um, in uh, verse 3, all things came into being through him. Panta diatu egenita. So, when you're talking about created things, John uses egenita. Now, egenita is just, the aorist is your basic uh, way of affirming something, and so when it's being used with ginemai, genita, uh, this is just a basic assertion of existence, and it it does not make a statement about it. it does it's not open to saying, well, this is an eternal thing, or there is in the idea of the use of that verb, it is, it is harmonious with something being created, coming into being at a point in time. And so it's interesting that even in verse uh, 6, uh, when John is introduced, it's agenita anthropos, apostolamenos parathayu, anima auto ioannes. So even when talking about John, he uses again a There was a man sent from God, name was John. So if it's created, he uses Ginnamai. But what's interesting is when looking at the Logos, what John specifically does is he doesn't use a He uses the imperfect form of I me, ain, NRK ain halagas, kahalagas ain prosantheon. Kaitheas ain halagas. Hutas ain anarche prostantheon. So the imperfect 
is an interesting form because it normally, like in normal narrative, would refer to a continuous action, an action that's just going on the past. I was eating. Um, Not just I ate, but while I was eating, such and such took place or something along those lines. And so it's, it's talking about an action going on the past. You can have inceptive, you can have different emphases depending upon the verb and the context and, and things like that. But it doesn't refer to a point of origin. It refers to continuing existence. When we're talking, it's an, it's, it's an existence verb. So this would be one that you would want to use to talk about something, or in this case, someone who is existing in the past without making any reference to an idea of creation or inception of existence, beginning of existence. And so you you have that three times in in verse 1, you have it again in verse uh, 2, and then you have again a talk coming in verse 3, all things were made through him, and apart from him, nothing was made which was made, that which was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light was shining in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it, depending on how you want, what do you want to do with Katela Ben there. And then there was a man sent from God, his name was John. Uh, this one came for a testimony. He might testify concerning, testify concerning the light, in order that all might believe through him. That one was not the light, uh, but came in order that he might testify concerning the light, uh, which is the true light, which lights every man coming into the world. And of course, is it is it every man coming to the world or by the light coming to the world? That's one of the interpret- interpretational issues that people go after. In him, uh, uh, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, then gave he authority to become the technotheu, the children of God, even those believing in his name, who not from bloods, neither from the will of the flesh, neither from the will of a man, but from God were born. Um, so there is a consistency. All the, all the verbal forms when talking about someone other than the Logos, not suggesting anything about eternality or anything, like that, but the Logos, especially in John 1, 1, the first verse, the Logos does not come into existence at the beginning. So you have those first few assertions. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, it's not saying, in the beginning the Word was created. It does not say that the Word's creation marks the beginning. Whatever the beginning is, the Word's already pre-existing it. And this is the key element of the author's utilization of two different forms of verbs. But I said that was through verse 13, because in verse 14, for a very important theological reason, that changes. That changes. Kaihalagos sarks againeta, and the word became flesh, and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us, plural us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the monogonous para patras, 
the unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Karatas kai alethaios. The Word became flesh. Halagas sarks egenita. Not halagas sarks ain. Not using what had been said of the word before, because the word has not eternally been flesh. To become truly flesh, one must enter into the realm of fleshness, which is the created realm. So, creation comes about through the Logos, who himself is not created, and then at a point in time, the Logos sarks Again, it's all, the Logos became flesh. That happened in time. That happened in space. That is why when the birth narratives are provided to us, they are placed in history. They are placed in a geographical location. It is not like so many of the Greek mythologies where it's literally once upon a time once upon a time, and you don't know where, and you don't know when, and you can't check it out, and you're not expecting it to be a part of any historical records, because it's once upon a time, it's mythology. That's not what the Incarnation is. The Incarnation takes place in history, and Luke's going to tell us who was ruling and reigning and what was going on and stuff like that. Um, Because the assertion of the New Testament is this happened at a certain point in time. The Word became flesh. Now, if the Word had eternally existed, as I believe a fair analysis of John 1-1 would indicate, if the Word became flesh, then is this saying the Word ceased being what the Word was before and now took on a completely new form of being. Well, we, we know that's not what John is attempting to communicate. He doesn't stop to answer all sorts of questions. His, his emphasis is on the reality of the sarks. The sarks. The carne. Incarnation. Carne. Latin. Flesh. And... There seems to be, there certainly is in his first epistle, a real concern about emphasizing the physical reality of the Incarnation because of the early Gnostics. At least the early influx of belief that would become Gnosticism that denied that Jesus had a physical body. And so, he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled and hamin amongst us. And that does not mean in individuals. That means amongst us. He entered into human existence and he lived amongst his people. And so, that idea of tabernacling, that's the term that's used in the Old Testament, of, of the tabernacle itself. It's a tent. And so it is the idea not of the Logos becoming flesh, but taking on flesh and living amongst us. The Logos does not cease to be the Logos. Logos does not cease to be eternal. 
the Logos does not cease being the Logos. But the Logos takes on a perfect human nature and dwells among us. And we beheld his glory. So he's, he still has the glory of the Logos. If he had ceased being the Logos, what, what glory would there therefore be? That's the question. We beheld his glory. The glory hos monogonus para patras, the unique one from the Father. Um, so, there is a glory associated with the relationship between Father and Son, which is an eternal relationship, which does not cease. But it's very plain here. This is the Son who becomes incarnate, not the Father, not the Spirit. There is distinction here. There is distinction and order here, unlike what you have in one theology. It is the Logos who becomes flesh and dwells among us. And by the way, oneness theology likewise really struggles to deal with this issue of the Logos and has come up primarily with this idea of the Logos as a um, foreknown reality that God knew about what he was going to do in Jesus. And so the Logos doesn't eternally exist because remember, from their perspective, there's only one person. And so Jesus was two persons. Jesus was the um, divine aspect, who we would call the Father, indwelling the human person, Jesus. But the human person, Jesus, is not eternal. God knows him in the sense that he knows any the rest of us. But he himself does not exist uh, eternally as a, as a divine person, because they are Unitarians. But the point is that even in the incarnate state, he is full of grace and truth, but he's also glorious. He's glorious as the unique one, parapatras, from the Father. Not the Father himself, but parapatras, from the Father. This is the incarnation. This is the testimony. That, and, and part of the reality brought to us by John's construction of this Christmas story. It is an incarnation story. It's the Advent story. It is found in the contrast between the aorist of Ginnomai, Agenita, and the imperfect of the Greek verb of existence, I mean, ain. And that is what is used of the Logos up to verse 13. Then Agenita comes in because the incarnation took place in time. And that's so central to our faith that we tell time by that reality to this very day. That's what... We, we, we may be so thankful to see 2020 vanish into the rearview mirror, but the very fact that there is a 2020 is in and of itself a testimony to the fact that the Christian faith has formed Western thought. Because Muslims don't... Well, Muslims do know it's 2020. They have to. But the rest of the world, every time they talk about 2020, what are they doing? What is, what is 2020? 2020, Anno Domini, Year of Our Lord, 2020. 
and uh, he is Lord of Time. That's why a lot of people want to go this common era, all the rest of stuff to try to get rid of that element of the Lordship of Christ. But he is Lord over time. We uh, we tell time by when he was born by by the incarnation when he entered into time. So there you have the uh, the prologue of John. Um, from a uh, Christmas story from my own past. may have been Christmas Eve, but um, I don't remember. But I, I remember what the room looked like. Uh, I remember the, where, the, where I sat and where the Greek New Testaments were and, and uh, all that stuff in a, in a house we don't own anymore. Somebody else lives in that now. But, uh, uh, you know, I've been thinking about doing I've been going down memory lane because hopefully... Um, when we go to uh, St. Charles, uh, first weekend in December, uh, the next week I'm going to be going, I'm going to be driving down to Pryor, Oklahoma, uh, visiting with uh, Derek Melton and the folks down there at uh, at the church at Pryor, and then driving back uh, from there, I. I looked at the map and I said, well, if I'm going to be driving. And my, my grandmother used to live in Kinsley, Kansas. And I have not been back there since we moved to Arizona in 1974. And uh, I've not, never been to her grave. She died in 1976. And, and I'm like, I wonder if I could find that place. And because, man, I have, you know, it's amazing once you get, I'm, I'm, Heading straight for sixty, real fast. Rich, Rich tells me it's it's really rough, and man, I'll tell you, I can really tell. No, he's he's, it's it's sad. It really, the the diminished capacity. You you understand Biden? I understand Biden. I understand. <laughs> yeah, so I know what's coming. So I'm trying to I'm trying to use my memory. No, seriously. The funny thing is, I I, I called my dad a couple times this week because. Um, I was trying to remember. I bet my mom would have remembered the address to that house. You know why? You know why? Because she wrote letters, longhand, in beautiful handwriting. And when you write out, because it was, it was like 702 and a half, is what it, it was. It was like, it was a, one half, because it's on an alleyway. Uh, no. No, she would have remembered immediately. She didn't get jokes for two days. Uh, she would get the other stuff just fine. Um, but jokes, yes, my mom would call me up. I just got that joke you told over the weekend. It was great. Anyway, uh, so obviously her mind was still running through those things to figure out what was so funny about why everybody else was laughing. But, um, but she's not around anymore to ask, and so uh, my dad didn't remember. And, but I was using new technology, Google Earth. Because Kinsley, Kansas, is barely a wide spot in the road. So I figured there can't be too many alleyways in Kinsley, Kansas. But this was also, you know, 45 years ago. It could be gone, you know. Um, and so I'm sitting there looking and looking, going, oh, man, it's going to be pretty tough to find out, find something from Google Earth. And so... I was talking to my dad, and I, I was talking about the memories that I had of walking down to the little main street in Kinsley to go to the little drugstore there. They had a little toy section. And I went by myself. Yes, believe it or not, my parents were not terrible, horrible people. 
they let me walk down to Main Street by myself in the 1970s um, in Kinsley, Kansas. Well, starting could have been as early as the late 60s, but very much 70, 71, that area. And that was a big deal for me. It actually helped kids to grow up, you know, take responsibility for themselves and all the rest of that kind of stuff, which nobody does anymore. Anyway, but I remembered which direction it was from the house. And some students are going, well, if I could find that main street, then I might be able to figure this out. But I'm talking to my dad, and just in passing, he said something to me. He said, yeah, the, on the other end of the alleyway, the alleyway ended at a Catholic church. Bing! I had been looking. There's the Catholic church. There's the... Bing, 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 bing. There it was. I see this little... Because she lived in this... It was basically the size of a garage. It was very small. But I remember how the house was laid out. And there it is. Found it. I know, I know exactly how to get to it. And so I'm going to try to... Uh, on the way back from prior. It's out of the way. It'll add hours to the trip. But... Because uh, I want to visit that, and I also want to see uh, her grave, because I never never got a chance to go there. And uh, just want to I'm sorry. I'm sorry, those of you who are sitting there going, I don't care about, you should just be talking about textual variants. You don't have, you can't have a human life. There are people like that. There really are. They're, they're sad little people. But anyway, um, what we did Christmas there. And we did one Christmas at, at my grandmother's house, and I, I remember it clearly. <laughs> and they gave me this toy. <laughs> I think my dad's going to watch this, so he's going to love this. They gave me this toy. And remember, this is the, this is the early 70s. It was probably 71, something like that. And it was, it was a pretty cool toy. It was a it was a red I remember it to this day a red metal jet type thing and it had a hook a wide hook type thing on the top that you'd put onto this cable and you'd 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 attach it to a landing thing on the other side it had a had a had a runway and I think it had things you could had to jump over so it had wheels and and you would fly it down this cable and then try to get points by landing it properly or something like that. And the cable had bumps on it so it would make it sort of sound like a plane going down. Well, not going down. <laughs> it didn't come out right. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the same thing. But, um, and I love this thing. It was great. But while we were there, <laughs> while we were there, um, one afternoon, my dad decided to take a nap. It's a very small, very small house. And so this thing was long enough that it started in one room and you'd land in the other room. And he was sleeping just way too long. <laughs> so I decided I needed to fly my plane. I mean, you know, when, I hope he, when, if he hears this, he thinks about the fact that when I was like four years old, five, four or five years old, they bought me a, uh, a race car set. Uh, one of those electric, remember the electric race car? And these were big cars. They were like this, this big, and they, they ran on the tracks and stuff, and oh, those were fun. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this was even a Hasbro, but no, it wasn't Hot Wheels. No, these actually had little electric motors in them, so they were really cool. 
Um, and there's a picture somewhere. I wish I still had it. Um, there's a picture somewhere of me standing like this, looking up at my my racing set with all the adults standing around doing the racing. Okay, so I was permanently warped by that. So this is my way of getting back. I think was I had this plane. It's probably only a few years later. Uh, I had this plane. I needed to fly it. Okay, I just you know the, it, it's you, you have to do it if it's there and it's silent. You have to do it. I remember I launched that thing, <laughs> and my dad's eyes shot open because he was sleeping. My dad's eyes shot open, and the lasers that he fired burned the flesh off of my face. <laughs> you know that look, parents. You know the look. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That I remember that. The only thing, the only two things. Other than going down to the, the store, the only, only th- other things I remember of that, about that house were this is in the middle of Kansas. And if you want the world's greatest corn on the cob, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Buried in butter and salt and pepper and oh. You, you cannot, you cannot get, uh, you, you can't, you, you can't. You've got to be there at harvest time. I mean, it literally had just walked in from the field, and it was that fresh. Oh, that was just unbelievable. I think my dad did his fried chicken there, too. And, oh, put, the, put those together. <laughs> that, was, um, that was unbelievable. And then the other, actually two other memories. One night, I was scared to death because I thought there was a bear in the house. And my dad had to take me into my grandmother's house uh, room. To prove to me that that little woman who was only four foot ten uh, could snore that loudly, <laughs> I thought there was there was I thought that, that had to had to have been had to have been. And then the other the last memory, last trip down memory lane. Sorry about this. Um, a bat got in the house, and I have clear memories of my dad with like a pillowcase or something like that chasing this bat around the room while my sister and I are hiding uh, under our pillows and stuff. And it it was, again, a very, very small, uh, very, very small place. And he must have eventually gotten it, either that or shoot it out of the room or something. I I forget how it was, but but, um, I have clear memories of that. So I'm I'm hoping, I doubt, I doubt there's anybody living in it, or if there is, I'm not going to let a weird person from Arizona in, but... Who knows? You never know. Uh, meet somebody outside. Tell them about your experiences. Maybe they will. I don't know. But I'm going to try to go by and uh, and see that in Kinsley. And somebody in Twitter mentioned that and said, "Hey, by Kansas by Kansas standards, I'm really close by. I'm an hour and a half away." <laughs> which which out there in the flat 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 areas of uh, of Kansas, uh, it, yeah, long way between. Civilized places, just lots and lots and lots of fields. There's no ways about it. So, so there's my incarnational story. Uh, took the whole time, but hopefully you'll find it to be something that maybe uh, dads you'll share with your families or something like that. Uh, what are you looking at your watch for? What? I know that. I'm just wondering why you were looking at the watch. I just uh, it's, I've never seen you doing that before. Like. 
Are you? Are you? Is he going to call this early today or something like that? He's just going to tell a Christmas story and then wrap it all up from there. I mean, that's sort of what you what you were looking like there. I'm, I'm not not sure what you're what you're all about there, but no, see, see, I, I you, was going you, to. Um, you you, th- you think that? Uh, let's see here. I got to hit the button. There we are. Uh, you 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 talk about how you 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 say you live with Biden. Well, I I live with uh, the two old guys from the Muppets, all in one. <laughs> yep. Yep. Now we've been look. We, you and I have been sitting around going. Someday we're gonna be in the old folks' home, sitting around talking about and and we've told that story for twenty years Jillian already. Times, yeah. um, and now it's just starting to come true naturally. Yep. It's, um, I'll tell you what, though, it's good that you can actually find your grandmother's house still. Yeah. Because my grandparents' house down on Kokopa. The entire neighborhood's been bulldozed. Mm. It's gone. It's just gone. And it's, yeah, Kinsley isn't the type of place that's going to be going, undergoing yeah. a whole lot of renovation. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's not a growth area. But Prescott, oh, good grief. Well, no, I'm talking about because you know I was actually born here in Phoenix. Oh, that's right. So, oh well, yeah. My dad's family was from here down in a very rare, very rough place town, two room house, raising uh, ten kids, and so yeah. But that whole place is gone now. Yep. Well, the, the the house I lived in in Minnesota, I did try to find that when I went back visited Bethany House Publishers, and um, it's underneath a parking lot or something like that now. Uh, so that's a little sad. A uh, lot a lot of people a lot of people in Europe can go visit ancestral homes from their <laughs> from 500 years ago. Uh, we don't we don't generally have that, but I'm hoping this one will still be around um, and that that will be. When I get there, uh, will be the same spot. Uh, if I can, you know, sort of document it or something like that, that'll be sort of cool. Anyway, as I have been reminded uh, by the powers that be uh, in uh, on the other side of the glass, uh, we are not done yet. Uh, we have not provided you with. Um, well, a lot of you are sitting there going, other than the brief exegesis of John one one, you haven't provided us with much of anything at all. Now, be honest with yourself. Uh, it's it's not it's not a bad day to be thinking about other things, uh, so you just aren't overwhelmed. Just uh, yeah, you know, God's been good to us, so let's let's be thankful for that. Um, but uh, I was just going to make one <laughs> one other comment. Last week, what was the day on this? November first. So. Uh, four days ago. I don't know if anybody, nobody saw this. Uh, it's it's right before the election, so nobody cares. Nobody saw this. Um, the Vatican Secretariat of State provides context of Pope Francis's civil union remark. Okay, so I I don't know who these guys are that have the job of spinning Francis. But when he retires or dies, because that's pretty much the only way out, um, the books... I mean, I think spinning Francis would be an incredibly good... That, that's a great title. <laughs> you know? I, that would sell. You know, spinning Francis. The, the books that they could write about the backroom meetings where 
all of a sudden, everyone's cell phone goes off, and all these priests and monks go running across the Vatican grounds into the special room. And it's like, what now? Can you believe this? Oh, no. And in this situation, this took days. Um, and normally, it only takes hours. Normally, when the, the, call goes, the call goes out, the, the Vatican Secretariat of State, their special shock troops, <laughs> their, their SEAL Team 7, um, they, they come out with a statement <laughs> really, really quick. Because they have to. Not this time. It, it took a while to cobble something together and to try to do some damage control and say, well, you know, there were these specific situations in Buenos Aires when he was archbishop there, and all he's really saying um, is that, you know, people who've been together for a long, long time, there should be consideration of, you know, medical decisions and visitation in hospitals and and you know this is this is really all he's talking about. He's always differentiated between marriage and civil unions, even though we all know the civil union thing. Is there anywhere I wonder in the world where the civil union thing was where it stopped? Or is the pretty much universal experience so far is that civil unions is the stopgap point right before Obergefell, basically. Um, but the idea is, all he was really saying is, is that homosexuals who live as a couple should have these legal abilities to share properties and, and stuff like that. Well, that's still, you, you still have to sit back and go, okay. Can you imagine a pope from any preceding century that would ever have given consideration to this? And the only way, because the honest response is no, and so the only next step to take is to start applying Cardinal Newman's development hypothesis in regards to the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church and start expanding that out to morals and ethics and saying, yeah, that's true. No pope before this pope would have really, no pope before this century minimally and really no pope ever would have considered this, but um we have to allow the church to develop with culture. And the culture's acceptance of what is still officially considered to be a disordered state, a disordered desire, the culture's acceptance of that disorderedness could you use could use a little bit of order. And all we're suggesting is that.
Um, <laughs> it took a long time to come up with a pretty lame excuse, but they've come up with something. And I'm sure they're probably just waiting for the next explosion and the next thing that will come after that. Uh, but again, for the hardliner who wants to continue to believe that the Pope is the infallible vicar of Christ on earth, um, they're just sitting there going, but he didn't say I pronounce and define this doctrine. And as long as he doesn't do that, which, of course, makes infallibility irrelevant because popes almost never do that. But anyway, which reminds me, one last thing before we wrap up. Um, the, I mentioned on the Theology Matters uh, microblog um, last week, I think, we are putting the studio together. Uh, Rich is over there each day messing with stuff and putting stuff together, and, and we're, we're working on it. In fact, he's leaving now to go do some more, I'm sure. Um, and that's going to, once we have it functional and we really know how it works, and after we fall on our faces a few times, which will happen, uh, after we have a few technological nightmares uh, and figure out how to avoid those types of things, after we get past the Windows Vista stage, <laughs> for those of you old enough to appreciate that, uh, then we will be looking at scheduling real debates, not the kind of 15-minute opening statements back and forth and then a billion questions from the audience on subjects that don't, don't really matter. Um, real serious debates. And it has been pointed out that there are some Roman Catholic and uh, debates on the table, including, interestingly enough, a invitation from uh, Jimmy Aiken to defend to to debate sola scriptura. And Trent Horn mentioned that, and I I uh, wrote back, and I didn't see a response to it. That doesn't mean a whole lot. I, I try to remember to say I did not see a response rather than saying he didn't respond. Whether he did or didn't, I don't know. I can't tell. It's really hard to use that. I mean, I like Twitter. I like um, yesterday, Kofi. Uh, did you see that? Kofi posted a picture in the Kuji, which is... I'm sorry? Yes. And um, so, I mean, that's cool to be able to have that kind of communication and uh, have other people commenting on it. And, and often the comments are fun and enjoyable. It sort of creates community. It can also create all sorts of other things, too. I Believe me, I know the bad side of Twitter as well. But it's next to impossible to go back very far and find much. And so I if... Trent responded to this. I didn't see it. Let's put it that way. But my response was, you know, I would think that the real necessary topic of the day uh, would be, is Pope Francis the infallible vicar of Christ on earth? Don't you think? Why, why in light of 
Pope Francis's um, interesting statements and the responses, even from Roman Catholics, to his interesting statements. Don't you think that would be the subject that needs to be debated today? Because we've debated Sola Scriptura. I, I first debated Sola Scriptura 30 years ago, back in August. So, Jerry Matitix and I have debated it. Uh, and um, Roberts, I think Robertson Gen- did. No, he and I did justification. Um, obviously, Patrick Madrid and I have debated Sola Scriptura. Uh, Mitchell Paqua and I have debated Sola Scriptura. And I still think that Mitch Paqua and my debate on that subject is handles the subject just perfectly fine. But it's the other side. I've debated um, Roberts and Jenis and Tim Staples, specifically on papal infallibility. That's a narrower aspect of the other side's claim to Sola Scriptura. The Roman Church's claim that the Pope is the visible head of the Church and epistemologically provides them with absolute certainty, which they say cannot be obtained with only Scripture, and that Scripture is not intended to function as being both materially and formally sufficient, but that the Pope is. So, over the past 30 years, Roman Catholics, Roman Catholic apologists have sort of honed their arguments and discussed what's called the partum-partum theory, uh, which was one of the views expressed at the Council of Trent in regards to uh, holy tradition being found partly in Scripture and part, partly written, partly oral. Um, and then that wasn't what, how Trent eventually put it. That was in one of the rough drafts, but it was not eventually the words of Trent. And so they have, especially in the last century, attempted to, uh, how shall I say, sharpen their definition of tradition in light of the development hypothesis, Cardinal Newman. And so you've got uh, Eve's Congar, Congar's work on tradition being something they point to very frequently and the categories of material and formal sufficiency. And their willingness to say um, that while Scripture is not meant to uh, provide the sole infallible rule of faith, that implicitly all of Revelation is contained in Scripture. And that's a, a way of trying to get around the, the real problem, and, and that is, if you deny Sola Scriptura, you, you, in essence, are opening up the reality of continuing revelation within the Church uh, in the form of this tradition, which then can only be defined by the living magisterium, and therefore there's, you're, you're stuck with Joseph Smith, basically. Um, obviously in a prelate's hat, but a different concept. Anyway, 
I would think uh, that a Roman Catholic would, at this point in time, want to give a firm and clear defense of the positive claims of their church, and hence a defense of the idea that Pope Francis is the infallible vicar of Christ, and is therefore um, the only true mechanism whereby tradition can be defined. Where, and, in fact, the only true interpreter of Scripture, the only true definer of Scripture, the only true definer of tradition, and the only true definer uh, of the meaning of tradition is found in Pope Francis. Because that's what Rome says. You know why that would be doubly useful? Because there are some Eastern Orthodox guys that want to get involved in this. And that would differentiate between the Eastern Orthodox denial of Sola Scriptura and the Roman Catholic denial of Sola Scriptura. Because the Orthodox denial has to take a different road. And in one way, the Roman Catholic position is somewhat easier to define well, especially in a debate, almost anything Roman Catholic is easier to define because you've got the Western mindset of dogma, decrees, canons and decrees of various councils you can just turn to. Whereas in Eastern Orthodoxy, it's much more the definition of theology via the liturgy, which is not nearly as definable. Um, and that's why, in my opinion, most Eastern Orthodox apologists end up sounding like Roman Catholics without wanting to. Uh, when, they, when they enter into Western-style debate, there's, there's a fundamental gap between that and Orthodoxy's actual experience. Um, in my opinion, anyways. But the point is, that would differentiate between the Roman Catholic denial of Sola Scriptura and the positive claim. Because the positive claim of Rome is denied by Eastern Orthodoxy. The positive claim of the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome is denied. And, and especially when we get into the real issue, which is epistemology. What is theanustas? What is an actual true word from God? So, my counter-proposal, as we continue making progress on putting stuff together, and not trying to put any extra pressure on you, Rich, but everybody listening is now saying, come on, Rich, get it done. What? What are you trying to show me? Oh. Oh, that's what you went and did. See? There. There you go. Now, see that big old board there? Uh, I'm hoping it's going to talk to me when I get in there uh, in a little while, when we get done there. But yeah, there you go. And there, now, you know, the funny thing is you cannot see the other big screen there because it's up against the... There's a very large uh, screen right next to the flipboard right there. So there's a white... Fl the flipboard has white, and then you, there you can see it now. And that's going to be where... That's going to be where the opponent's going to be, right? So that's going to be nice and big, and you know the idea will be to have the opponent basically the same size as me. So it, again, you're trying to create as much as you can the atmosphere of a real debate. Uh, I'll be able to look over at my opponent and stuff like that. And then I'll have a screen in the back as well so I can see what's 
going on the big screen. Uh, what? What are you doing? The box? Don't you love how it does that? It just doesn't want to go back, does it? The box is me. Oh. Not sure exactly how to take that. <laughs> there have been a few people that have considered me to be somewhat square. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so where the box is is where I'll be standing. Theoretically. Right. Right, right, right. It's coming together, coming together. Yeah, so that's where we are. Uh, looking forward to it. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be a lot of work. Um, but um, like I said in that, uh, and if you haven't, I haven't been hitting it as hard as I need to. I, I need to do it more. But the Theology Matters microblog, make sure you've got that in your RSS feeds. We really, before the end of January, we need to be set up to disappear from social media. Uh, Because I think if the left is victorious in the presidential race, that's going to be the signal to big tech, it's time to move. It's, it's time to, to shut all the opposition down. Just silence them. Because no one's going to come after us now. There's going to be, there's gonna be no, no, uh, no penalties to pay because they want us to do this. They're hand in hand. And so we need to have the RSC, RSS feeds set up and alternate posting methodologies worked out. And it's just it's got to be done. If we don't have it done, we're going to be the last ones onto the bus um, when we finally do figure out some way of continuing um, our way of communication. And um, look, given what we've done for over 30 years, uh, coming up on, um, well, in 2023, uh, we will celebrate uh, Alpha and Omega's existence for 40, four decades, going into our fifth decade. We never thought back then that we would be leading the resistance <laughs> um, as a pair of old men um, leading the leading the resistance. Uh, but that's maybe what we have to do, uh, leading the resistance in defending the faith, calling the culture to repentance, calling the culture from its own self-destruction, and encouraging the saints. But if that's what we we got to do, then that's what we'll do, and we need your help to be able to do it. And right now, the primary way that we have communication with people is this program. And so um, we're obviously putting a lot of thought into, all right, we're going to wake up one morning to a bunch of emails from people saying all the dividing lines are gone, all your videos are gone. Your channel's been locked down. Uh, doesn't, doesn't even show up anymore. Okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to communicate with, with folks? How are we going to continue leading the, uh, the, uh, the resistance? 
and uh, so those things that we are we are thinking about. So uh, even in the worst case, almost worst worst case scenario, I figure we've got minimally two years with the Senate acting as a firebreak, as a as a as a wall. That's assuming, and this is the scary part. That's assuming uh, Senate Republicans standing firm. Is that that that? That's a spongy break. Let me put it that way. Um, that's a spongy break. Uh, though Susan Collins was reelected. How did that happen? Um, that's astonishing. Really, when you think about it. It really makes you wonder if things swing super left, if that might not grow a spine in some of these people. They might see themselves as the resistance now. Um, anyway, uh, be it as it may, we, we certainly are thinking about these things, and we, uh, we want to – we're not ready to lay down and go quietly into the night. Uh, not it's, it's it's not our style um so we're gonna we're gonna do what we can and uh try to continue to not only encourage you in the cultural issues but provide you with the foundations uh, to be able to respond to attacks and defend the faith and do all those things that we've been doing whether we will be able to have as large an audience or whether those in the audience will have to become actively involved in helping to spread that message. Um, that could be part of our future. If it is, the Lord knows it, and he'll give us the grace to get there. So there you go. Anyway, thanks for watching the program. Thank you for putting up with a few uh, family stories today. Uh, again, there are a few curmudgeons who just do not believe that I should have a regular life, but Hey, Lord bless you. For the rest of you, have a great day. We'll see you next time. God bless.